0: Hello fellow time travelers, I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast.
1: And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast.
0: And I'm Brooke,
1: we're the Fiction Paradox,
0: the only podcast dedicated to the
1: BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world, That we know of.
0: You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your Enjoy your, your travels. travels. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them. Or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books. To the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks, to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy
2: your travels.
1: Ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child, but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have, or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age.
2: You know, one person's
0: trash is another's treasure—something like that.
1: Each episode hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening
2: hello fellow time travelers i'm wendy padbury and you're listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your
0: travels Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the astrological task of discussing in-story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations, because we are a used astronomical, so we've got to use this one now. My name is Tony Hwitt, and today we have a veritable salami fest, <laughs> an all-male three-person discussion <laughs> panel, including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we welcome back, as our pinch hitter of this episode, the host of the video Junkyard podcast and the police box in the Junkyard podcast, Eric o. Branson. Hello, Eric.
1: Hello. Good to be back, and so soon. So. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Unexpected surprise. Yes. Pleasant surprise. Good surprise.
0: Absolutely. Except for this book, anyway. (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, though it's going to be hard to imagine that soon, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, though they won't give you a face mask with a PBS logo, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've taken to storing them in an old, ruined Roman temple, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. We'd like to give a special welcome to a new patron, Simon Painter. Welcome aboard, Simon. (coughs) And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons... Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you all. Thanks, y'all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the first story of Tom Baker's third season with another goddamn Philip Hinchcliffe novelization, (laughs) this time of Louis Mark's script for The Mask of Mandragora. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Mask of End adapted by Phil Pinchcliffe from the script by Louis Marks that aired from 9.476 to 9.2576, published by Target Books in December 1977. As of this recording in March of 2021, this title is currently out of print but is available as an unbridged audiobook, 123 pages. Now, you wouldn't know it from this book, but this story had enough of a draw to it that Liz Sladen put off leaving the show at the end of the previous season just so she could be in it. Part of this may have been because of where it was going to be filmed. Obviously, the production team couldn't just pack up and go to Italy to film, even at the beginning of the season. Instead, they chose the Northern Wales tourist village of Port Marion, I believe it's pronounced, which is where the prisoner was filmed. The architect, Sir Clough William Ellis, I hope I pronounced that correctly too, designed and constructed the entire village in the style of an Italian village, all the way from 1925 up through 1975. Naturally, it was considered a perfect spot for filming a story set in Renaissance Italy that wouldn't incur the price tag of actually going to Italy to film it. The cast of the story included two actors who had appeared on the show before, namely Norman Jones as Hieronymus, he was also in the Silurians, and Robert James, who played Lesterson in Power of the Daleks as the High Priest. We also get a now very well-known actor, the late Tim Piggott Smith, in an early role as Marco. Some years before, his acting in The Jewel in the Crown would propel him to international acclaim. He would go on to appear in movies such as V for Vendetta and Quantum Solace, among many, many other parts, before his death in 2017. He also read the audiobook of this particular novelization, Lucky Him. As far as we know, the cause of his death was not reading the audiobook, so there we <laughs> go.
1: As far as we
0: know. As far as we know. <laughs> I think there's a big cover-up, to be honest. Louis Marx had previously written Planet of Evil and Day of the Daleks, and famously, who could forget, Planet of Giants. (laughs) Uh, But more than in any other story, he was in his wheelhouse with this one, because he had a specialization at university in Renaissance Italian Studies. He actually got a doctorate in it. The science in the story, obviously, is the usual Doctor Who standards which is to say it's almost non-existent, but historically the story is period accurate, as were the sets and costumes, because if the BBC knew about anything in the 1970s, it was how to do a period drama. But this would also be his last story for the show, and Marx himself died in 2010. In addition to the new season, the story introduces two other notable things, though one is more noticeable than the other. The TARDIS prop, as we said last episode, is finally replaced for this story, which is really only noticeable if you look at pictures of them side by side, since not many changes were actually made at all. The big difference, the one that really is noticeable, is the TARDIS console room. Hinchcliffe commissioned a brand new set for this, done in wood paneling and brass to give the TARDIS a more Victorian feel. Problem is, the new console does not have a time rotor, that little thing in the middle that goes up and down. So nothing really changes in the console room when the TARDIS is in flight, so it's very static. The lighting is nice, but after this season, the decision's made to get rid of the new set and go back to the old one, or at least a version of the old one. As for the book, this was Hinchcliffe's second novelization. His third and last was Keys of Marinus in 1980, and luckily we've already read that one. This is also one of the few books translated into French. Somehow all of that purple prose reads just a little better in French. And it was in story order, the last book to be published in this country by Pinnacle. Dalton, we had Eric do the dramatic reading of the back cover last time. Let's have you do it this time, if you would. Sure.
2: Forced off course by the Mandragora helix, the TARDIS lands in the province of San Martino in 15th century Italy. Here, the court astrologer Hieronymus has been taken over by the Mandragora energy reform. Hieronymus and the other members of his star-worshipping black magic cult will be used as a bridgehead, enabling the Mandragora helix to conquer the earth and rule it through their chosen servant. The doctor has to defeat not only the Mandragora energy, but the evil schemes of the murderous Count Federico, who plans to usurp the place of his nephew, the rightful ruler of the province.
0: And as murderous as the prose is on that back cover, it's nothing compared to what we get in the actual book.
2: Oh my god, why do they have to say Mandragora so many times? <laughs> over
1: and over. Mandragora, uh, Hieronymus, star-worshipping black magic cult, you know?
0: It's oh, he an astrologer. In fact, yeah, uh, there's right. a drinking game that I made up for this book. Every time you see the phrase Hieronymus, the court astrologer, take a shot, you will be drunk off your ass by the end of chapter five. Yeah. It is ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Must have not been sure that we would figure out who that was in an explanation
0: every time. So. Is, he, is he a major character?
1: Hmm. So many Hieronymuses in Italy, right now, in this you know <laughs> kingdom at the time. But...
0: I know, you got Hieronymus Smith, Hieronymus Jones, <laughs> Hieronymus Bosch. Yes, exactly.
1: Oh, are you guys talking about Hieronymus the court astrologer? Is that
0: <laughs> I thought you were talking about the taxidermist down the street. <laughs> He's just as freaky, you know. Oh, God. So first impressions, Eric, uh, when you first saw this... Uh, novelization. What was your first impression of it? This
1: one is—it's kind of a funny reaction because had I not been lucky enough to be part of our last episode last time and read Philip Hinchcliffe's novelization of *The Seeds of Doom*, I think I might be a little more upset with this book, or you know, just kind of over it. But honestly, it was a little bit like maybe not a breath of fresh air, but I think it was decidedly better than his last one. It's hard. That being said, I—I I don't think it's a literary classic or anything. Although, I'm going to give Philip Pinchcliffe just the tiniest bit of vindication here because I feel like some of my gripes about the last book was about his, like, just the really, like, stilted kind of cliff notes almost version of the Seeds of Doom that we got. This one is not really better written but it certainly seems a little bit more fleshed out so then i start to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt back being like oh maybe they did really have to trim a lot out of seeds of doom to get it to us you know whatever page count they were going for although i think it ran a little shorter than the average if this were a fresh read i just picked this uh, this book up out of compared it to the entire target novelization library i think i would have been very disappointed but coming straight off of seeds of doom I was okay. I was back here. <laughs> I was actually able to enjoy it a little bit because uh it really is better, but only because I think the story survives where in seeds of doom it barely held together
0: mm, that that's a very good point. Dalton, how about you? What was your first impression of this seeing it? judging
2: by the the cover, I was wondering why these masks were going to eat the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, much like Eric, having read the last book, that kind of soured this one for me a little bit without even having read anything. I was kind of excited to go back to kind of a historical location. it's I feel like it's been a little bit since we've had historical story that was at least something to look forward to. Yeah, we don't get much description of what is going on in Italy, you know, how everything looks. I like the idea of it being set in 15th century Italy to just kind of have like a place setting and something in my head, as opposed to the last book, that I could kind of visualize even if he didn't give us lots of description. I I could at least have something to go by to maybe give me a little bit of an idea of where San Martino is.
0: Yes. And if you didn't know the year and you didn't know the place, you would definitely know it after reading that first line, which <laughs> reminds me of Sophia from the Golden Girls, <laughs> picture it, San Martino, 1492, that whole construction the year was 1492, the place, it's like, oh my God, uh, and yeah. all the, <laughs> I tell my students when they're writing a paper to use a hook to capture the reader's attention and drag them in. That first line is so unhookable.
1: Yeah, it's like nineteen forties newsreel, like the place, <laughs> like San Martino, like yeah, no.
0: exactly. It's like opening a paper with a dictionary definition.
1: <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. god, <laughs>
0: it's so
1: awful. According to Merriam-Webster, now, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> According to Merriam-Webster, San Martino in fourteen ninety two had a court astrologer named Oh, dear God. So where do we start with this one?
1: I was going to, this is kind of jumping to it because I'm going to spoil a little bit of what was my, maybe my least favorite moment of the book, but I'll try to come up with another one. But because it's like right at the beginning, I think it fits at this part of the show. Philip Hinchcliffe managed to come up with the least interesting description of the TARDIS that I think I've ever come
2: across.
1: (laughs) He actually makes something, you know, that is generally like one of the most interesting hooks that Doctor Who has. Like, oh, it's a time and space machine, but it fits in this tiny little police box. And that's, you know, the first thing that people go, whoa, that's cool and kind of weird and different. And it's one of the things I think people first get the hooks in you about Doctor Who. And he makes it just the dullest, dullest thing in the world. I'll grab the quote here. It's, the craft was unusually shaped about eight feet high and five feet square, and on its top flashed a small white lamp. It had an altogether enigmatic and alien appearance. Unless, that is, you happen to be an earthling from the mid-20th century, which the people reading this book when it was contemporary pretty much all were, and in case you would have recognized it as a very ordinary London police box, but even then you would have been misled, because inside the craft was infinitely larger than it was on the outside and looked nothing like a police box." In fact, it bore far more resemblance to a highly sophisticated spaceship, which is what it was. It's <laughs> a ship which traveled through space and time. Its inner workings embodied a secret which had eluded countless civilizations since the dawn of life itself. Period. And yes. description. It doesn't actually explain anything about the TARDIS besides it being a spaceship. Yes. If that was the way they would have done it in 1963 on the in Unearthly Child, we would not be sitting here right now. So
0: (laughs) it's true. And also to put the first of many exclamation marks on one of those sentences, a ship which traveled through space and time. It's like, oh God, and we're not even five pages in. And we get that kind of hyperbolic and also kind of dull description going on.
1: It's kind of like that whole paragraph. He's like, you might think it's this but it's not (laughs) then you might have thought it was this but it's not
0: you foolish stupid pre-teenager how could you not know what it is (laughs) the problem is he doesn't seem to know either because he gets certain facts about the show that he himself produced wrong because when he describes sarah jane he says she was sarah jane smith a London journalist who had first met the Doctor several years before when he had visited Earth. No, she fucking did not. He didn't visit Earth, he was there already. That's a pretty major thing to get wrong, and he d- does that a couple times in this book. Well,
1: maybe like some other people that have come and gone from the show, and, and, and I don't mean this is a specific dig on anybody... But maybe he doesn't know a whole lot about what happened before his time on the show, and just was like, "Oh, okay, I'm coming in here. This is where I'm starting with my Doctor Who (laughs) knowledge, and just go on from there." But
0: (laughs) here now, so it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, he may be taking Terrence Dicks' whole approach to continuity, which is continuity is whatever we can remember at the time and what we make it right now. But even something as minor as that, it's just kind of crazy. Come to think of it, a lot of my notes come from that first chapter because I was just ready to tear this one a new one, to be honest, after uh, Seeds of Doom. (laughs)
1: At least we got a a little bit of a description of the doctor besides just a tall man that puts his feet on desks is what we got in the last book. But we get a little bit more here. At least you can kind of be like, oh, well, he's, what do you say, sparkling blue eyes and a beaming smile and dressed in a curious tweed trousers and long red velvet frock coat. You get at least the eccentric dress. And so it helps a lot (laughs) like that, just a little bit.
0: You know, it would really have been nice to get a description of, though, the new control room. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Because he doesn't do it. (laughs) This is the control room that he signed off on the redesign of, and he doesn't even bother to describe it when they find it. In fact, one of the reasons, and this is for Dalton, one of the reasons why the doctor thinks that this was the old control room is because he finds one of Pertwee's frilly shirts uh, hanging on a chair in it. Okay. And Sarah finds a recorder of the sort that the Troughton doctor had. Yeah. And those aren't mentioned in this at all. In fact, Hinchcliffe has started cutting the fat on a story that doesn't have that much to begin with. This is a four-parter. And he has the doctor actually say to her, I don't know why I like you so much. And we don't get Sarah's response, (laughs) which is brilliant. You humans have got such limited little minds. I don't know why I like you so much. Because you have such good taste. That's true. That's very true and it's this lovely little back and forth but it's just left kind of hanging in this terrible uncomfortable way on the page
1: it seems like a cruel thing the doctor says here and it it's not at all i mean and and a lot of that's in performance as well he doesn't he doesn't capture that here but but her response and just their rapport with one another
2: totally missing totally gone yeah i was i was wondering about this secondary console room made to look victorian but wood paneling to me just seems so 70s
0: oh well not that kind of wood paneling i should i should have been more specific paneling it's hard to describe this but yeah it's essentially wood panels but it's not that sort of slat 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 kind of thing that Mm -hmm. the 70s had because if you look at it in fact i'll show you a picture of it at some point if you look at it it is gorgeous in fact the tv movie essentially models the tardis interior that they do gotcha kind of on the Hinchcliffe one okay except they make it more dynamic that's the one thing going against this one it really has no dynamism at
2: all gotcha yeah i was just picturing horrible like 70s web paneling <laughs> with, with brass <laughs> fixtures so that was confusing to me so i'm, I'm glad to hear that it's not that hideous
0: no, not at all. It looks like a sailing ship to some degree, and that's really quite nice. That's I think that's what they were going for. Okay. But you wouldn't know it from this book.
1: It's really cool, but I agree with the assessment in your intro that the one thing that it really lacked was any, like, visual cue to the TARDIS being in motion. If they were to continue to use it, which they only do for, you know, a little while in this season, they literally have to write a line in or something every time the TARDIS is moving because you really have no idea, you know. <laughs>
2: shake the camera a little bit oh we're going now
0: yeah there's no way to tell there's absolutely no way to tell and it's pretty awful the one thing he does seem to describe quite often and this is unfortunate is federico (laughs) yeah oh my god yeah and i hope to god the actor who played federico never read this because the first description was this outward elegance was marred by his own features, which were brutal and ugly, heavy lidded eyes, dark and cold, a nose hooked like a vulture's beak, a mouth set in a permanent sneer. And every time we see Federico, who admittedly is not a nice guy, but every time he is described as just cunning and vicious and. <laughs> you know, in prose anyway.
2: Yeah, clouded in shadow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the nicer descriptions.
1: His choices are, although almost never good, are sometimes just not just plain bad, but just confusing. Like, I'm not sure why exactly he does that. But
0: And also, I think I said this last time, his wording, he sometimes doesn't seem to know what certain words actually mean. Because he refers to the, well, he refers to Mandragor Helix as an obelisk. It's not an obelisk. It's a flying sphere of energy. It's a spark effect that they overlay on the film, so it's not terribly impressive, but it still works pretty well. But it's spherical. It's not an obelisk. An obelisk is something stuck in the ground. It's a monument. It's not something that flies around burning people up. It's stupid. I'm going to say that a lot, probably, but, you yeah. know
1: somebody buy that man a dictionary speaking of dictionaries
2: (laughs) (laughs) if anything could be described as an obelisk maybe the crystals that appear but i haven't seen it so i also don't have anything to go by
0: were you able to visualize what it looked like that circle of crystals that they end up landing in at all or
2: i've watched a lot of anime so i was picturing some magical girl sequence something like that (laughs) Something very geometric, crystalline, very colorful, but still not too solid. Something more ephemeral. Something more—it's—it's it's energy. It is totally just something that is intangible.
0: Yeah. Whereas on screen, it's a CSO effect. They're on a black background. They're basically just surrounded by strings of rock candy, <laughs> which is strangely effective. But
1: yeah, I. I had trouble, and I've seen this one a couple times, and the last time wasn't even too long ago, but I had trouble from this book even pulling up, like, I was trying to remember what exactly they had done with that, and this didn't give me any hints, so
0: it's like... No, not at all. Not at all. What else? Because I I think we could probably go chapter by chapter and talk about all the terrible word choices and Uses of exclamations and all that, but there's a, there's obviously a lot more to say about it.
1: In chapter two, we learn something. Well, I mean, not not literally, but it was an interesting uh, I don't know choice that he made here. But S- Sarah Jane is, describes the temple after she's captured and is kind of coming to in the temple saying the whole place smelled of occultism and magic yeah it's like oh really so sarah jane's got this entire like dark side we don't know about huh like she's she's dabbling in the occult and
2: like because obviously she's very familiar enough there well (laughs) yeah she's a journalist in the (laughs) mid-70s just earlier in that chapter he talks about the room was small and dark, crammed with old charge, astrolabs, ancient books and bottled potions, all the paraphernalia of astromancy and there's another time later, yeah, where he does the same thing, he describes some items, he's like oh, it's black magic, occultism it's like
1: Really? Kind of like the whole cast of characters is like, oh, yeah, totally. But they don't bother explaining it to you, you know, like the, the reader.
2: It's just like a generic description of like a goth girl's bedroom. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> is there like a giant tapestry with a pentacle on it? Um, Marilyn Manson posters yeah. everywhere.
1: That's pretty occult and black yeah. And magic-y. Yeah, sure. It's probably. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's, that's totally oh, it. It really is a shame that he's going for... What I tend to think of as rhetorical shortcuts, these are going to be things that put a very particular image in your head, but it's the wrong image to some degree. I mean, sure, some of that is on screen, but it just seems like a lot of lazy writing when you do that sort of thing. And it comes off as hokey. Oh, God, yeah.
1: Because that image that that paints, you know, like you said, goth teenager's
2: bedroom is not at all what this invokes on screen. (laughs) I understand what he's going for, I get where the imagery is, but the way that he describes it is totally throwing it off. It's making me go to that, like, Hot Topic girl's bedroom. (laughs) Right. Well, it's the lack of description,
1: it's that he uses those words as, like, a connotation of what we all understand them to mean but that's not entirely accurate to what he's actually trying to describe so it's really problematic i think
0: Mm -hmm. even when he describes Hieronymus, he calls him an astrologer and a sorcerer and it's like okay which is it because he's only supposed to be the court astrologer right if that's the case then he's not also doing sorcery even though we find out that he is also doing that but someone actually describes him as such and it's like wait a minute those those words aren't interchangeable
2: well, Tony, he's actually a dual class, so um, check, check, check it out.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 confusing. Okay, does that mean we have to roll uh, two d8s when we roll for his stuff? Yeah, you have to you have you have to roll a perception
2: check to know whether he is using an astrological skill or,
0: Sor- sorcery. Sor- or sorcery. Sorcery. Oh
2: God.
1: Yeah, and. That's a little, like, tip of the hand. I mean, not that it was a major surprise that Hieronymus ended up being the cult leader, but that wasn't something all the other characters knew, so for them to be describing him as a sorcerer is kind of like, well, that's, I don't know. They don't know that, or at least they don't know that at this point in the story.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: There's another good example of something like that on in uh, chapter 4 on page 40, where the Doctor is described as using intuition his sixth sense, or that telepathic power which Time Lords possess, told him that Sarah was ahead and in danger. That's like three different things. Intuition, a sixth sense, and telepathy. <laughs> <Yes>. Like... <laughs> and he uses it to, like, describe the... Oh, wait, it's just that thing that all Time Lords yes. have. It sounds like he's stumbling. Like, he's like, what do you call it? It's, uh, like a sixth sense, or, like, <laughs> intuition. I don't know, it's just that thing all Time Lords what have. You, like,
2: what do I call <laughs> yeah. it? I don't, I don't think it's any of those. I think it's the chanting that he's been hearing the whole time. It's like <laughs> right. you, you hear crazy demonic chanting maybe that's like a signal that something bad's going on. Yeah, No, that's just called yeah, common sense, Doctor. No. If
0: your companion has been kidnapped and you hear chanting, it's probably Wednesday because this is the Doctor and Sarah's life. This is how their lives go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> God, it's no wonder she's pissed off about it in the next story.
2: <laughs> Speaking of Sarah Jane being kidnapped, uh, <laughs>
0: What the hell? <laughs> I want to hear what you think about this. <laughs> yes.
2: After a couple of really good stories where Sarah has a lot to do, she, you know, she's this go-getter doing her best to help solve whatever problems they're running into. All of a sudden now, yeah, she's just a damsel in distress. She gets hypnotized again and drugged <laughs> and she's yeah, and she's gonna be sacrificed. It's annoying to see her put back into this typical female. Role of just I'm been caught. I need your help. Come get me. Agreed.
1: Yeah. How many times does she get captured in this story? Like captured, escape, captured, escape. Like
0: at least twice. At Mm -hmm. least twice. If Terence Dix had written this. He probably would have had Sarah thinking Riley. oh god, it's Exelon all over again, because it's death to the Daleks. This is exactly what happened to her in that story. She was captured, she was drugged, she was almost sacrificed, except for there we had Terrence Dix making fun of it by having her just bored by all the constant chanting and all this, whereas here it's like, oh god. Yeah, there's nothing even interesting there. In fact, Dalton, I was wondering what you were thinking about that kidnapping, because on screen, it's almost a world record for Sarah, because (laughs) at least Hinchcliffe shows her being kidnapped, whereas on screen, she goes out of shot, the doctor realizes she's gone, he walks in her direction and already sees them carrying her unconscious form away. And it's like, my God, <laughs> she just stepped out of shot for a few seconds to eat a peach, and now she's captured already. God. They conked her on the head with a club, and yeah. she's
2: out. He yeah.
1: Yes. And I'm sure, that comes from Louis Marx's script, obviously, but yeah, it's a little weak, the whole like, oh, a peach, I'm just going to walk off in the other direction. It's just like, oh, geez. Because the show gets, it's, it's these moments that, give it, like, that bad rap that I think is, like, less often true than not. The majority of episodes of Female Companions for a show that was produced throughout the 60s and 70s are, are treated with a lot of respect as characters. This show was actually fairly progressive at the time, I feel like. But, yeah, you have one of these, and it's like, oh, well, you know, I see, I see exactly where the criticism's coming from, because this is ridiculous.
0: Yeah, precisely. And uh, come to think of it, Sarah Jane Smith is generally described as a screamer. And it's like, ah, there's something to that in the performance, maybe. But if you're reading her on the page, she's not just that. And you can't reduce her character in that way. But you can in stories like this, unfortunately.
2: Then the whole aspect of her fawning over the Duke.
0: Oh, goddamn that's hinchcliffe
2: yeah and i thought we were gonna lose her already i don't know when she leaves but it's like really this is, we're gonna do this again she's gonna get left behind to be with her prince in 15th yeah. century he
1: described it through her eyes her florentine gallant as i was uh yeah like at one yeah. point yeah yes <laughs> We ended up fried
0: crispy on the uh, floor of the mask. But yeah, the very last chapter, though, it's odd because he has her actually thinking about staying, and it comes out of nowhere. There's no other indication in this book that she is at all interested in Giuliano. We get some indication he's interested in her, but that's only when he dances with her at the mask. But at the very end, there's this implied romantic tension that comes suddenly. That's what she said very quickly. That is going to happen to a a later companion, unfortunately. And it's going to happen on screen, too. But here, it shouldn't be happening, especially the bit where she says that she would stay, but the doctor wouldn't understand. He was already ribbing her about Giuliano. It's like he's left plenty of companions behind when they met somebody they wanted to stay with. So why should this? He left the last one behind right. that way. So
2: why should this be any different? So I give it a try and watch how fast he's gone. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, he is not as attached as you think he is. Yes. Don't get it twisted. He's yeah. not that into you.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just so strange to have that, especially since it doesn't exist on screen.
1: I don't remember there being anything there, really. There that, is nothing. Especially not that would lead you to believe she's, like, pining over him the way she seems to be.
0: No, not in the least. In fact, if anything, you get the sense that Giuliano may feel kind of a puppy dogish feeling towards her but that's it when we hear her say poor Giuliano at the end she's not doing it in a wistful way she's like oh poor guy but but yeah it's nothing nothing like that exists in the televised version at all and it's just stupid in fact we should probably talk about what Hinchcliffe does add to this book because even that makes no goddamn sense (laughs) (laughs) oh my lord it is early on The whole back and forth about the vial of rat poison when the doctor is brought before Federico and Hieronymus comes into the room. The doctor is noticing their interaction, and it says, in addition, he had noticed a suspicious-looking file of liquid, which the sorcerer had brought to Federico on first entering. A look had passed between the two men, suggesting complicity in some business of which the other courtiers in the room were ignorant. And then later when he grabs it and he sniffs it and he says that it's rat poison, that doesn't happen. At all. And in fact, why does it need to? Because if you think about it, we've already been told that Federico wants to kill Giuliano through poisoning. We don't need that. The doctor has more than enough reason to be suspicious of Hieronymus without that. So I don't even know why it's there.
2: And the fact that Giuliano knows that there was intrigue and villainy afoot. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case
1: you hadn't picked up on this yet. Surprised he just didn't give us an exclamation point line like Frederico wants to kill the Duke (laughs) exclamation point
0: (laughs) exactly
2: yeah the fact that that Giuliano already knows that they're out to get him it's like you don't need to tell us that there's poison here and the doctor
0: knows it's poison
2: like what why
0: Yeah, if Jenny were here, she'd be going da-da-da. Yeah, because it's one of those (laughs) moments. And it's like, oh, for heaven's sake, why do you have to put that in? So stupid. I'm sorry, I told myself I was going to stop saying that. But even just scanning through my notes, I can see things like the outlines of a devious stratagem began to formulate in his head. It's like, why do we need to be told that? It's very much, in fact, Jenny was saying this last time about uh, Seeds of Doom it's very tell versus show it's not describing much at all it's describing the look of someone having a devious thought but then it's telling us that someone has the look of having a devious thought but then they're also having a devious thought and we're being told that they are and it's ridiculous it's redundant
2: and and some things we don't get any description on at all there's a line giuliano was seated at a table in his private chamber in the palace with him was marco Instead of their usual silken doublet and hose, both men wore the official clothes of mourning. Yeah,
0: whatever those are.
2: Yeah, what are the official clothes of mourning? (laughs) You're gonna describe the silken doublet and hose, but you're not gonna tell us what clothes of mourning are? Are they naked? Are they wearing robes? You
1: brought it up, and then you don't tell us about it. Like, (laughs) why even have it there? At all.
0: (laughs) Well, picture it. Sicily, (laughs) 1492. They're probably in some black frilly lace like Sophia would be if she was going to a funeral. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Neglige. <laughs> Neglige, <Negliches>, exactly.
0: <laughs> Speaking of which, this is something that I've always wondered about. Every time that Marco is described as Giuliano's companion, I keep thinking, apart from that brief little bit of interest he shows in Sarah in the televised version, I think they're a couple.
1: Oh yeah. I actually Even from the, like, first time that I saw this, I actually thought somebody, and I don't know anything about Louis Marx and what his, like, where he's at in being a, you know, gentleman of the 70s or whatever, but, like, (laughs) I actually, that was the text that I, the subtext I read the first time I, I saw this. It's like, oh... It seems like they're a couple, and it's written in the seventies. So of course they can't say they're a couple, right? And and Giuliano's very progressive and he's very scientifically minded and he seems like I don't know, it just seems like it fit, right? Yeah. I don't get that in the book though. So no. <laughs> like I don't really uh they, they kind of devalue Marco. I mean, he's not like in it less, but he just seems less important. Like they don't show that compassion that they have. You know, whatever their relationship is, but obviously very close and compassionate relationship that they have with one another. I don't get that in Cliff's prose at all.
0: I think that's because it's so much in the performance, and that's why the loss of Tim Pickett Smith really is a loss to acting because even then, in an early part like that, a relatively minor part he really is good and so is the actor who plays Giuliano and they've got this nice chemistry so that you think if not erotic love there's definitely amitas going on there there there's definitely more than the love of just good friends and it's there in the performance but it's not there on the page at all so much is not here on the page
1: yeah i actually would be surprised if someone was able to watch the mask mandragora and not at least give that a question mark like So are they a couple or what's what's up there? Because, yeah, I mean, that's just, I think it's there in the subtext. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but certainly in the performance, it's there.
0: Speaking of things that get lost because we don't have the performance on the page, Sarah's brainwashing, which I have a lot of trouble with in the televised story to begin with. This is a trope of 70s whatever, that you always have people getting drugged And getting immediately brainwashed and becoming an enemy of their friends until they're snapped out of it. And it's like, it's a lot more difficult than that, really. And it would take more than just a few sips of some fruity drink (laughs) for her to turn against the doctor entirely like that. And it actually works better on screen, if only because you have those performances by the actor playing Hieronymus, you have Liz Sladen, and they sell it but if you don't have performance you can't sell it and if you can't sell it then you realize just how dumb it is especially since if i remember this correctly eric forgive me if i'm wrong you see her getting drugged there's a scene change and then you see her in her drug state being hypnotized by his sparkly jewel or whatever and then given the uh, poison needle here it happens all on the same page and it seems instantaneous
1: I feel like you're right. I feel like it's a stretched out scene that's intercut with other stuff going on. Yeah, and here it's it's not even given an entire page. It's like, "Oh, he it's going to be, you know, uh... A hypnosis and she's gonna snap out of it and then it's gonna come back later and he gives you all that in two sentences of info dump kind of like this is what's gonna happen don't worry this is how this hypnotism works <laughs> like
0: <laughs> yeah as soon as it wears off she'll be fine
1: not only is it a 70s cliche like you said but by this point of doctor who the companion being drugged hypnotized possessed has just become such a, a cliché, and unfortunately continues to be one for a while after this, that, yeah, it's just kind of like as you're reading through this, you're like, oh, hypnotized, oh, drugged, great. Especially after the go for a peach and get knocked out and then get grabbed by, <laughs> I don't know, she's just... <laughs> I. Sarah Jade Smith such a great companion, and I it's, it's painful to see her so wasted. It's in the televised version, too. It just feels even worse. It's not just that she's wasted, but here she's wasted and given no attention at the same time.
0: Exactly. So that when you get those later scenes, when she's actively annoyed with the Doctor for being flippant with her, we lose some of the weight of it. Because, again, that's something that comes across in the performance, and if you know, oh, Sarah may be leaving soon... That's going to make a lot more sense because she's coming to the point where she's just getting really sick and tired of the doctor's shit to some degree, and that's going to play into some of the reasons why she decides to go. But there's also something else that happens, too, and this is something that probably Dalton's going to be surprised by. The way the Doctor knows that she's hypnotized, that she's able to notice that she can understand and speak the local language.
2: Yeah, I thought something was weird with that. Yeah. no, know, Knowing the, the modern explanation for it. But yeah, I don't think it's ever been something that's been brought up up to this point.
0: It never has. You're absolutely right that we find out this is the very first time that it's ever been addressed that a companion understands the local language and that they notice it. Even though that seems like the very first thing anyone would ever notice. In fact, that's exactly what happens in the new series. The first time Rose goes off planet into the future, she notices it. Donna Noble notices it when she goes to Pompeii. And she also notices that when she speaks Latin, they think she's Welsh. <laughs> Hold on a minute.
2: That sign over there is in English. Are you having me on a it? No, 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 no.
0: That's the translation circus.
1: This makes it look like English. Speech as well. You're talking Latin right now.
2: Seriously? I just said
0: seriously in Latin.
2: Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> what if I said something in actual Latin? Like Vene Vide Vici. My dad said that when he came back from football. If I said Vene Vide Vici, so that like, what would it sound like? I know
2: sure. You have to think of difficult questions, don't you?
1: I'm gonna try it. Oh no, sweetheart. What can I get you, Marla?
0: Um, vene vide, Vici.
1: Huh? Sorry? me no uh, speak Celtic no can do missy how do you mean Celtic? Welsh, you sound Welsh yeah yeah, we are, learn something
0: which is just hilarious <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> they
1: make a big scene about it in uh, Vincent and the Doctor, too, don't uh-huh. they? With yeah, Amy being able to speak the language. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, that makes more sense. This whole Time Lord gift nonsense is in the original script. It seems only to be there so that the Doctor knows, oh, something's wrong with Sarah, even though obviously something is wrong with Sarah because she's acting a lot more weird than usual, even though on screen she's not. It's the weirdest thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's so terrible that uh, Sarah Jane Smith is a journalist, and the fact that Doctor can detect that something is wrong with her because she is curious about something (laughs) is like... (laughs) like, (laughs) I mean, and I mean, I guess we should be worried about her journalism skills because it's taken her this long to ask that question, but, you know... (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's a weak moment, and to bring it up and then to leave... Well, first of all, leaves it with the famous I'll explain later... Uh, which he, he does, but very poorly.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that's really odd, uh, I just lost it, I'm sorry. I can't remember what I was going to say. This, this book is so wretched that I'm having trouble thinking what I was going to say. Oh, it was my theory about why she's so easily hypnotized. Except, who cares? <laughs> because my theory is this. Sarah Jane Smith probably wouldn't be so easy to hypnotize if the doctor hadn't put her under way back in Terror of the Zygons and Loch Ness Monster. It's like, okay, of course she's susceptible to hypnotism. And he should be able to notice that she's hypnotized because he can see it in her eyes like fucking Giuliano can. <laughs> Even Giuliano says her eyes are strange. It's like, yes, she's high as a fucking kite right now. And she thinks her best friend <laughs> is an enemy sorcerer. Of course she's hypnotized. I put a note in,
2: in my reading that the hypnotism just reminded me of the plot to Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: my god, really?
2: Yeah, because it just it's it's so ridiculous. That's not a good thing though. <laughs> no, no. That, that's that's the point. It's like it's funny in Zoolander. It should not be
0: funny here. It really shouldn't. You're absolutely right. This isn't meant to be played for laughs. Yeah. Yeah. And you could argue nowhere Zoolander. (laughs) But yeah, it's just ridiculous. Can I also talk about, speaking of things that are ridiculous about the original story, there are a few things that you might think, and I'm specifically talking about Dalton, that if you've not seen the original story, you might think that Hinchcliffe was responsible for them because they are so mind-numbingly dumb and they're in the original script the line about the bat droppings uh-huh. is in the original script oh, yeah. okay that is the reason why the captain of the guard does not want to go down into the catacombs because the bat droppings are twice the height of a man that's in the original script for some god only knows reason as is and this just kills me that they have Sarah actually in Chapter 10 say, you don't have to use that 15th century double talk with me. I speak it a pretty good English. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that works in 1976. It really doesn't work in 2021.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, that is right out of the show.
0: Yeah, in fact, I had forgotten it until I rewatched the story, and I was like, holy shit, it is there. Oh, good God.
1: Another "Hey, it's the '70s" moment. So. <laughs> yeah, precisely.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just turn the channel, and you'll be able to see the minstrel show that the BBC had on until 1989. <laughs> oh. Ugh. Lord God. There's a line
2: when the doctor is asking for wire and he makes some offhand comment and there's the line that says um, Sarah had forgotten how unsettling the doctor's bouts of enthusiasm could be to anyone who didn't know him. There, I feel like there are a number of instances in the book that kind of talk about how long Sarah has been traveling with the doctor and hint at her kind of understanding his mannerisms and things.
0: But then they're ruined by Hinchcliffe saying things like It was not often the Doctor grew so heated or showed his true feelings. Really? Have you been around the Fourth Doctor lately? (laughs) Sarah often wondered why he cared so much for Earth and its people. What? Why (laughs) would she wonder such a thing? He talks about it all the time. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, she knows so much about him and has, you know, can detect all these feelings and things he's having, but at the same time seems totally surprised by his basic behavior, the things he always does.
0: But. It's, it's like doing the Book of the Pescatons again and having her say, Just how old are you, Doctor? It's like, you know, he's told you. <laughs> oh, well, what can you expect, really, from a writer who starts a chapter with the line, For a moment, the Doctor felt his heart stop beating
1: oh yeah speaking of not knowing anything about the show you produced (laughs) yes
0: which one (laughs) jesus
1: god or maybe he did just mean one but then he doesn't explain of course he doesn't
2: say which one (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah speaking of them knowing each other and there's a line uh one thing i've noticed about you the worse the situation the worse your jokes get
0: yes that's actually there and it works Because he has been joking, and he is trying to put her off. It's because there's something missing there. In the televised version, he says, remember the French at Agincourt? And he's making a joke about it, and she says, but the French lost. And then she says what she says. She's really angry at that point, and the doctor's actually chastened because he realizes, one, he's been caught out, and two he has to be honest with her about how bad things are it's not that strong on the page it comes off as a continuity error like it seems to when you read it yeah it just comes off odd Mm -hmm.
1: well he also has a really like interesting odd line on uh i guess this is in chapter seven to page 66 but talks about how tired the doctor is yes the doctor has gone days without sleep and it's like hang on hang on like we we rarely ever hear of the doctor sleeping and actually know from certain pieces and i don't have an example but i feel like i know from other pieces of dialogue and other stories that the doctor doesn't sleep like a regular like a human being does and that yeah. he's prone to restlessness and not sleeping and maybe that's played up a little bit more in the modern series but still i feel like we know that
0: already i don't know <laughs> well it'll, it'll be coming up at the end of the season as a matter of fact sleep is for tortoises yeah, That's going to be right. a line in the story, in the last story of the season, that Hinchcliffe also produced. So there, there it is. And the beginning of that line that you were just talking about, he felt baffled, impotent, a prisoner in some kind of hell. It's like, what? <laughs> he what?
1: He felt melodramatic. No. He
0: felt melodramatic. <laughs> I feel baffled. I yeah. feel impotent after reading this. Well, the line before that, he had never been in such a maze.
2: (laughs) Really? He hasn't been in a maze of of catacombs,
0: caverns?
1: Never. (laughs) Never. Yeah.
0: Never. I don't do that sort of thing
1: in this program.
0: No. Well, it's just the kind of melodrama that Hinchcliffe seems to like to write. In that same chapter, he's got Federico talking with rossini and he says he touched his knuckles to his lips and bleared malevolently at rossini out of the corner of one eye what the hell what kind of expression <laughs> is that it's like <laughs> <laughs> he might as well have one pinky up and be dr evil or something it's ridiculous
1: yeah i was trying to find there's another good one here somewhere where he, I think it's related to Federico, page seventy-one, where he says that. Oh, and he's, he's threatening Rossini. It's in the in the chapter entitled "Torture!" Exclamation <laughs> point.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And that uh, he cracks his whip across the table, sending all of his objects flying. And this is after he threatens Rossini. Says, "I want the Duke's head here tonight. I want to spit in his sightless eyeballs." And I was trying to remember if that's. Out of the show or not? I don't remember it being quite so, I'm almost certain it
0: is. But it feels worse on the page, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's not connected to the performance. Because I do remember, you know, the actor who played Federico having kind of this wonderful over-the-top nature, but it works better there than it does in the... Yes, I mean, he's not my favorite villain or anything, but yeah, he'd certainly lends itself to that kind of thing, and I don't know, it just seems so weird on the page.
2: It seems like a tantrum. It seems very juvenile.
0: Yeah, and that's actually what it is on screen. He leans into the hamminess, though, on screen, whereas here, it's almost as if instead of doing what Dix would have done, which is casting Federico is exactly what he is, a bully, and a very loud bully at that, Hinchcliffe instead is translating him to the page as just some mustache-twirling villain. And he is that to some degree, but he doesn't come off as comically as he does on the page. And that diminishes what little character there actually is there. What else would we want to say about this?
2: Uh, There's the line. Hieronymus, you try my patience. You can no more read the stars than read my chamber pot. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> i actually like that one and that um, yeah that one's that one's a good one yes but every once in a while you'll get something like doctor there's a stench of evil in these catacombs now that's just the bat droppings juliana <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah the the script is not without its its good moments but most of them kind of i don't know are boiled down to this plot point by, by plot point style of writing that hinchcliffe really does i mean i i do feel like that's a criticism you could level at the target books in general but like we talked about last week there's a way to do it that kind of enriches the the material a little bit and there's a way to do it that just kind of hand holds your way through like this one was a little bit better than seeds of doom but we're still at a pretty clunky kind of just like direct translation of a screenplay or teleplay and it just doesn't make it very fun to read does it
0: no and we haven't really had Terrence Dix doing, he has done it, but we haven't seen him doing a lot of it. We have seen it with the books he wrote for earlier stories later in the 80s, by which point he was doing quite a bit of it. But even then, apart from Planet of Giants, which was also a Louis Marks script, he was still trying to add things to it. He still brought in the subplot that was... Yanked from the scripts that turned a four parter into a three parter. He was still trying to add value to the script, whereas Hinchcliffe isn't adding anything of value to this and is diminishing it almost as much as he did Seeds of Doom. In fact, I think that's probably why, Eric, you were saying that this one reads a bit better than that one. It's because the story, at least, is here. It's just not improved in any way.
1: Right. Yeah, he hasn't he hasn't removed large chunks of the story and characters and events. It's pretty much all here. That doesn't necessarily mean it's compelling in the way it is, you know, on screen. Even though yeah, maybe Mask of Mandragora is not the like legendary Doctor Who that Seeds of Doom is, but certainly <laughs> much better on screen than Hinchcliffe was able to do with this novel.
0: Yeah, and it really is a shame that that whole reputation that Target Books being script to page has That reputation comes much more from books like this than it does from Terrence Dick's books. It really does
1: yeah i think the cool thing about them is that i guess in, what we would call them in the modern fandom is easter eggs with those little things that you know those little bits that you could extra stuff you get to that fans could pull out of those and you know it just gives you that extra little appreciation for something that's a little deeper than what goes on on screen and when that's absent from it and it's not like it's a missing story or something that has some you know value it's just it just becomes you know a, a television novelization and not even a, a good one at that point yeah
0: yeah i th- i I think our modern sensibilities are more geared towards stories that are reinterpretations of stories than just straightforward translations of them. We on this show, for instance, have really loved the novelizations of Donald Cotton because they are so freaking crazy and far removed from the televised versions in in a really good way. Or even John Lucarati's novelization of The Massacre, which ends up being a very different story than what we got on screen. And yet fans tend to appreciate those, even as they say, oh, well, that's not the way it happened. We tend to appreciate that. The newer novelizations of the new series stories that have come out under the BBC imprint, those tend to be vast reimaginings of what we saw on screen. And that's kind of what we want, because otherwise, what are you going to do? I'm Facebook friends with Rob Sherman, who wrote the episode Doll. not trying to name drop, I'm just saying that this isn't a discussion we just recently had, and I said, Wouldn't it be possible for us to do more novelizations like this if they did them kind of the way James Blish did with the Star Trek books? where you had multiple episodes in one book because they are only an hour long. And he said, well, that would be a problem. But then it would be even more a problem if we went back to a Dixian way of just doing script page, because then you'd have really short books that essentially said exactly the same thing that you said on screen, and no one's going to sit for that anymore.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting, and I don't know if it's out yet, but didn't, didn't Bob Sherman just redo uh, write a Target book of Dalek? For, it's yes. It's out, due out very soon, I believe. But.
0: I think that's due out in a couple of days, as a matter of fact. Yeah. But yeah, if it's not out already. And I'm so looking forward to it, because yeah. that's still an amazing new series episode, and the idea of him expanding on that just is really exciting, even when those expansions aren't always fantastic there's still expansions we appreciate whereas something like this there's no expansion it just sits there
1: it's actually quite diminished even from how it exists on screen so
0: yes and there's not that much there to begin with.
1: And we're sitting in this, you know, kind of spoiled point of fandom. Because, you know, when this was originally published, there weren't really reruns. They weren't rerunning this stuff. So, you know, this was the way that you got to go back and relive these things. So I'm sure it did, even in its hinchcliff form here, it did have some value. Because it's just a way you could, you know, revisit this adventure. But I think from a modern standpoint, this kind of thing just, you know, I would much rather just pop in the Blu-ray. and relive it that way so so we are spoiled in that regard
0: yeah i would agree is there anything else we want to say about this one
1: i think we lose the absolutely excellent moment of the doctor dressing up as a lion (laughs) um it is not emphasized enough of how how great that is in this book but yeah
0: or his imitation (laughs) of hieronymus for that matter
1: oh yeah yeah yeah, they barely even touch on that, because they, they, he tries to keep it such a big, like, ooh, surprise, like we weren't... This you
0: know, <laughs> anyway, comes but. off as a big parlor trick, which is actually the way Sarah describes it, which is just terrible.
1: Yeah, and I and I actually, I don't know why I didn't think about this. Even though, they, you know, at the, by the point at the end of this, I don't know, the, the cult members had been kind of driven into the Mandragora helix and, like, the Mandragora energy. I don't know if they were actually possessed, per se. I don't get any details from this book. But the doctor's plan that ultimately succeeds is essentially the doctor committing premeditated mass murder of an entire cult of people. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it took the book to get me to that point where I was like, oh, I'm actually not real super cool or okay with that. <laughs> like, he's, it's kind of a weird moment.
2: But well. Yeah,
0: That is a point, but I I think you could explain it away by saying if the Doctor realizes that they've all been consumed with Helix energy already, that there's nothing left of them but that, there's no saving them at this point, and the only thing that's going to keep anybody safe is for that energy to be reabsorbed by the Helix, which is the part that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if it's coming down anyway, isn't it going to try to, but somehow it doesn't manage to it just reabsorbs them and then it buggers off yeah
1: yeah i was trying to remember from the televised story like i said i read this book and i still didn't get the details i wanted from the book so i have to go back to the t- t- <laughs> the tv story but if the each of the cult members had become you know part of the mandragora energy the way hieronymus was because i remember his faceless kind of robed visage but the way it was described in the book it didn't seem like the rest of the cult guys were that it was really as Hieronymus was holding on to that, so I don't know. Anyway, I'll leave it at this. I'll, I'll make it a Hinchcliffe issue, and that is the way he's described this in here, it sure seems like <laughs> premeditated mass murder of a bunch of people.
0: But... Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we've, we've actually noticed this before, that... In the books, anyway, the second Doctor comes off as a pretty bloodthirsty murderer, especially when it comes to ice warriors and Mm -hmm. aliens of that sort. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. If you had the choice between being in a locked room with the second Doctor or the fourth Doctor, you probably would not want to be locked in with the second Doctor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose it's one of those things, if you go back and really start nitpicking, you could find a lot of this, especially the older, you know, older Doctor Who find that in a lot of cases
0: oh yeah absolutely so shall we go to goodreads i think we can okay as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it simply read the book write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.54, which is actually lower than the previous book, which Hinchcliffe also wrote. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but do keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives this the usual very short review and gives it 3.5 stars saying, Really enjoyed this book. I know there's a lot of running around the catacombs back and forth, but I didn't mind that. Again, a book that is better than the TV version. Hmm, I don't know. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, also gives it 2.5 stars and says... I was a little surprised in the last podcast to hear how disliked Hinchcliffe's writing was. While the criticisms were valid, it wasn't Pemberton bad. <laughs> and <Wow>. he's <laughs> kind of right about that. It's, this is indeed true. It's not down to the levels of Victor Pemberton. And there wasn't as much of it as we got in that bumper volume of uh, Fury from the Deep. The same criticisms apply to this book but there were a couple of notable positives. First, the secondary console room and all its wood-paneled glory makes its only appearance in a novelization. That's right. Despite it lasting the whole season on screen, we're not going to hear about it in any of the books. I, I forgot all about that. <laughs> the second thing I noticed was the orange trees seen in the episode have been replaced in print by grapevines and peaches. Europe had oranges at the time the story was set, but sweet oranges were only just being introduced and wouldn't be growing on mature trees for sarah to pick she wouldn't have enjoyed eating one of the bitter oranges she would have been able to pick in fact on screen liz slayden bites into the orange and seems to be eating it peel and all which always just freaked me out as a kid i didn't really miss port marion even though it was used well on screen probably because my one visit to the place about 15 years ago was accompanied by typical welsh weather wet and miserable I just can't associate it with the mediterranean climate i've given this book three stars but it only warrants 2.5 goodreads won't let me give fractions though and hitchcliffe did put some effort in at least some of the time so i've rounded up rather than down not like the rest of us and finally christian petrie gives it a single star And says, sometimes it feels as if the Target books show how weak a Doctor Who story is. In this case, I know that the Masked Mandragor is regarded as a classic episode. After reading this, I'm not sure how strong of a story it is. Where to start on this mess? I think the biggest disappointment in the story is seeing how often Sarah Jane was captured, drugged, escaped, and captured again to be sacrificed. I know that sometimes the companion is not used very well, but this is the worst I remember in a while. The other aspect of the plot, the power play, just feels like a standard run-of-the-mill. The uncle trying to keep the nephew from taking power, his henchmen being bad, etc., etc. It just felt tired. The last part is how, by luck, the Doctor escapes or resolves an issue. It is built up, then quickly resolved by either someone hesitating or the Doctor already knowing the danger. To top things off is Philip Hinchcliffe's writing. He ends a lot of his sentences with an exclamation point. Even one of the chapters had an exclamation point in it. The writing in a target book did seem it was oriented towards the younger ages. I would like to think that this is due to the target restrictions or just trying to get a book out by the end i was looking forward to just getting this book done even though i've not seen the episode i hope that the televised story seems better oh believe me it is at this time just skip the book and hope that the televised version is better than the book made it out to be i i think we can verify that it is so eric out of five stars what would you give this
1: You know, I'm going to give this one a little bit better than I did Seeds of Doom, and I think I could manage to give this one 2.5 out of 5. I'm going to give it like middle of the road, and I will admit that there's some bias there because I really disliked Seeds of Doom, and I felt like this one was a little better. So there's a little bit of like that relief, like, oh, this isn't so bad, but (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty mediocre, and that's why I give it a 2.5, like right, right around the middle of the road, so... It is based on a story that, in my opinion, is a little weak, but not as weak as this book. (laughs) I don't know. The last book was a travesty. This one isn't. It's just dull, and Hinchcliffe writing is still weird and bad in places. Most of my major gripes about this are things that are probably gripes about the TV story, too. Lots of corridors. I think I agree with with Christian from that last review. Lots of corridors and caves and underwhelming bad guys. Odd choices and potentially mass murder. And then, yeah, the, the just criminal underuse of sarah jane smith and just the way she's treated in this story that that comes from the screen as well so some of that stuff is not specific Hinchcliffe issues can't give it too good of marks but i probably am being a little bit more generous just because i'm bouncing right off of seeds of doom and this one was uh, a little better so it's actually the opposite of how i feel about the tv stories
0: all right and dalton Yeah, I'm going
2: to agree with 2.5 on this one. It does feel better than the previous novelization we read, although it's still pretty flat. We don't get much description. The descriptions we do get are uninspired and bland. Sarah Jane is just relegated to being a damsel in distress again. She and the doctor's relationship seems weird and uncharacteristic, given a lot of what we've seen up to this point. And the story itself too just seems kind of I don't I don't even know. I don't I don't know the adjective I'm looking for. Nor does Hinchcliffe. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, the story just seems like there's no inspiration there. I'm uninspired, I already said, but it just feels like we just wanted something to be attacking the earth that was going to, you know, possess people, and then the Doctor's going to stop them. Something that we've seen before, it felt repetitive, it felt very much like been there, done that, seen this. And I feel like probably have read a better novelization of it somewhere along the way so yeah 2.5 for me
0: and as for me as an English teacher we're always told that you never grade students against each other if the last paper you graded was really bad that shouldn't mean that the next paper that you grade is automatically a higher grade because it's written better and yet that kind of is what's happening here Now, we are told that we need to grade a student against their former writing, and that's also what's happening here. And these are the only saving graces for Hinchcliffe here, because here's the thing. Mask of Andragora is written by somebody who actually knows what he's talking about when he's talking about Renaissance Italy and Renaissance Europe and how important that time period is to the whole development of so-called Western civilization and how an alien influence at that point would have thrown off just about everything. That barely registers in the book. You barely know that the stakes are that high. The TV story itself kind of gets there, but the script actually does. And the fact that Hinchcliffe can't even put that in and make the stakes clear Especially with all this really unclear prose and ridiculous word choice and just things that make this really difficult to read. And I kind of agree with Christian. I was speeding through it. In fact, Dalton, you noted that I only had one thing to say about chapter five. And that was that Hieronymus was hurt that Federico said that he was making up horoscopes. He was hurt. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, even something as basic as that isn't treated the way it should be treated in a book like this. So, yeah, just glad to have it done with and glad we won't have another one like it for a good long while. So, for me, it's a two. A two out of five. All right. So, thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. And we'd like to thank Eric Goldbranson for joining us again, especially for the deep hurting that this was
1: oh absolutely anytime oh it's uh it's it makes reading a bad book more fun to be able to come and talk about it i guess like you know <laughs> right. take turns ripping it. <laughs> it's like sharing war stories <laughs> yeah
0: exactly so. very much in this case next time we welcome jennifer picker to the podcast boy that's hard to say actually when we discuss terrence dick's novelization of the hand of fear in the meantime if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at BC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, just like a Hinchcliffe novelization, email me directly at EmperorDolic at gmail.com with Target, Book Club, in the subject line so I don't ignore it. And Eric, if you'll remind us where we can find your two podcasts.
1: You can find our uh, The Video Junkyard podcast and the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, any of the uh, podcast aggregates that uh, whatever your app of choice is it should be available they're two different podcasts but under one kind of umbrella of the video junkyard podcast so if you subscribe to that you will uh, get the feed with both of the podcasts featured
0: thank you again for joining us yeah. and thank you very much for listening stay safe and enjoy your travels bye-bye bye, bye. bye.